0: I'm really excited about what um, I'm speaking on this morning, which, which is a good start, or is a good place to start with any talk. Um, and I've called my message this morning, standing up for the gospel, standing up for my gospel. And what I really want today, above all else, is that we'll leave today with a deeper love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll be empowered to stand when we might face opposition for believing in that gospel. And there are a couple of reasons why I thought this was a really relevant thing for us to be looking at as a church this morning. Um, firstly, I don't know if you remember our series on 1 Thessalonians this summer um, that we preach through. Well, one of the themes that kept on coming out of that was the young church facing real severe opposition to the gospel and Paul encouraging them to stand firm in their beliefs for the gospel And in Rob's message, he spoke about how we are seeing more examples um, in our society today of social, of cultural, of political and of legal opposition to the gospel in this nation. So I think this is a question that we really need to face up to. And I think we've seen a recent example of that this summer when the then leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, Tim Farron, stood down because he said he wasn't allowed to emotionally hold his evangelical faith with leading a major political party. So I think we're seeing signs of that. And in in the Western world, we've had a very privileged 1,500 years, really, of having so much freedom to believe the Christian faith, so much freedom to preach the gospel. And while a lot of those freedoms are still here today, we're starting to see signs of a kind of opposition growing um, to preaching the gospel in this country. So that's the first reason I wanted to speak on standing up for the gospel today, to try and Not make us despair or be discouraged or beat ourselves down and think, oh, woe is us, poor Christians, we're the victims. No, I want to do that so we're encouraged to stand up and fight for the gospel. Then the second reason I want to speak on this topic this morning um, is that we are currently celebrating in 2017 500 years of the Reformation. Um, You may have seen it hashtagged as Reformation 500 on social media. And there's been all kinds of um, events and publications by huge numbers of different churches and Christian organisations to commemorate um, the 500th year of Martin Luther nailing his theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Um, and the themes that I want to pick up on the passage today really tie into that salvation by grace alone through faith alone that is something that we stand on today that is at the heart of the gospel and it's something we celebrate as we think about 500 years of the reformation and while kind of our immediate church history comes out of terry virgo's ministry Um, and is related to the wider work God did in the latter part of the 20th century, we've actually got deeper roots than that. Our roots go back to that kind of radical, non-conformist church history that was unleashed at the Reformation. So I don't want this to feel something alien or disconnected to us. This is kind of our deep history as a believing community that we're getting into this morning. Um, So those are the two themes, really. Opposition to the Gospel and remembering the Reformation. Um, And I've actually noticed these two themes come together in quite a lot of the mainstream media coverage of 500 years of the Reformation. Um, There's been a number of documentaries of various degrees of atrociousness, in my opinion, (laughs) over various key events of the Reformation um, on the BBC and on other television channels. And kind of when I watch them, the overall impression that you're left with is that actually the reformers were a bunch of fundamentalist, uncouth, hot-headed, destructive people who destroyed a calm, peaceful, lovely, unified European civilization? Uh, Which we're not going to go deep into the history of, but suffice to say, I think that is a a gross revision of um, early modern European history. Um, But it is interesting how I think if those documentaries were produced 30, 50, 100 years ago, the tone would have been very different. Um, and certainly being in England, where we have a partly reformed church as our national church, as the Anglican church, you'd think the message might come out somewhat differently. Uh, there, was, there was even one which linked uh, the Reformation and those who follow in their footsteps um, with the Islamic fundamentalism and jihad that we see today. That was the most extreme example. But that's the kind of tone, that's the kind of atmosphere Um, That these things are being perceived in. So I found that interesting. Um, Anyway, as I say, I'd love to spend um, so much time looking at the history of all of this and and examining the sociological impacts of gospel opposition, but I don't have that kind of time and I think the two of you who are interested may even (laughs) drop off after that. So what I'm going to do today, mostly, is that I'm going to preach the Bible, which is what I really love to do. So... We're going to look at a passage through those two lenses, but ultimately what I want to do is preach the Bible. And then at the end, I am going to go back to a bit of history. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a biography of one Reformer that I hope we can take inspiration from uh, once we've heard the passage. Uh, So if you've got Bibles, can we turn to Ephesians chapter 2? Our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Give us a moment to turn now. Okay, I'm just going to read the passage through. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among all whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, So I'm just going to really preach through kind of verse by verse, kind of in an exhortationary way to try and stir us up by what we see here. But if we look at the first three verses, we see very quickly why the gospel generates opposition. Just, just have a look at the message in those first three verses. There's, there's not a lot of good news in there. It describes us as being dead in our sins, literally unable to do anything because of our separation from God. Talks about us being under the power of a fallen world order. That's what the passage means when it talks about following um, the spirit of the air and being the sons of disobedience. That there are spiritual powers that are operating in the world that are opposed to God, and that actually we are under those powers until God rescues us. That's not a popular message. It's a universal issue. Look how the passage says how we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. It's not that there's a group of bad people who needed saving, a group of all right people who were a little bit lazy, but just needed a little bit more to get them over the line. And then a group of approved righteous people, which I think is probably a fairly common way of, of dividing up the human race. No, the passage here says we were all helpless. So it's a universal issue. Sin is a universal issue that none of us, no one in the world um, is free from. That's, again, not a popular message. The world does not want to hear that they are turned away from God and don't have his favour upon them. And then verse three carries on by saying, um, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires and the body, of the body and the mind. And this is another really sobering truth, that actually in this fallen state, in the state of sinfulness, all humanity can do is live according to the addictions that we have developed. All we can do is live according to those bonds and those chains that are upon us, living in this fallen state, living in our flesh, living under these spiritual powers. And again, to challenge people's addictions, to challenge people's habits, this is a this is a hard message. It is not a popular message. And then I think probably the word in there, the phrase in there um, that kind of generates the same opposition, the most opposition rather, is that word by nature. We were by nature children of wrath. We can understand the idea that maybe we've been corrupted by our upbringings, that we've been corrupted by society, that we've been even led away by we are children of wrath. And this is just so at odds. All of these things are just so at odds with the kind of self-affirming, we're all okay, anything goes kind of atmosphere and culture that we live under. That it's no surprise that there will be opposition to this message that we are bringing into the world. All of us, hopeless, broken, facing God's wrath, that is not a comfortable message. It does not sit comfortably, probably doesn't even sit comfortably with part of us, let alone the world that we're speaking it into. But, so begins verse four, but... What an incredibly important word that is, because to be honest, if our message stopped there, we wouldn't have anything to offer the world. We might as well go along and enjoy what we can of our hopeless addictions as we are in bondage to the fallen world. But no, there is a but. There is a but. And what is that but? Well, that but is a wonderful thing because it describes a God who is rich in mercy and a God who loves us with incredible love. And before actually telling us, well, exactly what is the good news? How, how do we get out of this, this mess that we're in? Paul takes time to talk about the love of God. Um, and it's this God loved us because he loved us. God has great love for us because he created us. There was no qualification in verse four to the love that Paul speaks of about God. He wants us to know that this rescue that he's about to tell us in the rest of the passage isn't coming from a reluctant God. It's not coming from a God who's obliged to save us. God didn't make a bit of a mess of his creation and now has to sort it out by sending Jesus. No, no, this is a God who is going to rescue us out of his great love. So we're taken from that depth of despair, that depth of our condition that we are in, to see this God of immeasurable love and this God of immeasurable mercy. And what does this God do? Verse five. So even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, made us alive. Wow. What a phrase. Just think of the contrast. Us under the power of sin, under the power of the fall, but God able to bring life, God able to make us alive again. This is this is what God does. This is the incredible good news that God does. And this didn't happen. God didn't make us alive in Christ uh, because we saw we'd gone wrong and we started taking steps back towards God. God didn't see that we'd started trying to meet with him again, didn't didn't see that we were trying to... (laughs) kind of make our way back to him. No, that wasn't what happened. We were unable to do that. We couldn't take any steps back towards God. It was God who did it. God is the actor in all of these verses. He is the one who makes us alive and rescues us. It comes all from him. And that's why Paul can say, by grace you have been saved. Grace is something outside of our power. Grace is something given to us. Grace is something we can receive. Grace is not something we get on any basis of qualification. So there can't be any thought that actually, yep, as a human race, we, we, we did go wrong, but we're, we're trying to make it better and now we're trying to get back to God. No, we, wouldn't, we didn't even have the inclination to try and turn ourselves around. It was God who did that. That's the grace of God, to make us alive in Christ in such a state of hopelessness. And you see that Paul... Paul goes on to describe a bit more about this, this phrase he has, by grace you have been saved later on. But he, he just can't help but exclaim it. It almost comes a bit early in his argument, but he just has to exclaim, wow, we have been saved by grace. <coughs> um, and we'll pick that back up as we go through the passage. So then verse 6. So we've been raised up with Christ. We, sorry, we've been made alive with Christ. And now it talks of us being raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places so so far what what we've been seeing of god's grace and of our salvation it might almost kind of have a negative slant on it i.e. we've been saved from something we've been saved from god's wrath we've been saved from our sin we've been saved from our helplessness and that is absolutely all true and absolutely all wonderful but we see in verse 6 that there's almost a positive slant as well we've been saved for something We're not just saved from something. We're saved for something. And what we've been saved for is actually to be raised up with Christ, to live in the resurrection life that Christ has, to sit with him in the heavenly places, to now actually have spiritual authority with Christ in and over this fallen world. So not only are we spared um, God's judgment, not only are we spared having to live under this fallen order. No, we are released, we are liberated, we are saved for this incredible spiritual life with Christ, this incredible kind of knowing the power of his resurrection in us and being part of the war against the fallen world. We're not just saved from something, we're saved for something wonderful. But you might ask, why would God do all of this? What business does a holy, just, Complete, entirely satisfied in himself God, have with creating us in the first place, and then having turned away, what business does he have making us raising Christ, making us alive with Christ again in our weakness? Well, our kind of instinctive answer to that question might well be because he loved us. He made us alive again because he loved us. And that is certainly true. But it's actually not quite the answer that Paul gives us here in this passage. Have a look at verse seven. This gives us the reason why God has done all of these incredible things for us that we don't deserve. Verse seven says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God did it all so that he could display his grace. God did it all so he could display his goodness and display his mercy. And again, I don't know how you feel about that. Cause our reaction to that might be, okay, God, you are God. Do you really need to make a big deal about it? Do you really need to do these things to display how good you are? Isn't isn't it enough that you are God? Is aren't you just isn't this ego, isn't this self-aggrandizement? God, why are you why are you making much of yourself? Mm. What's that all about? Couldn't you have just not created us, not saved us? What, what What is this all about? And I think this verse only makes sense when we grasp that God making much of Himself is not something that He does for his benefit. It's something that he does for our benefit. We need to see how good God is because God knows that we are only joyful, that we are only satisfied when we see his glory, when we see his goodness, when we can take hold of that and experience relationship with him. God has to make much of himself that we'd be captivated by him, that we desire him, that we would treasure him. So that's, and I really believe that's what, and um, Paul is saying in verse seven, that's why God has enacted this incredible and unlikely salvation, him making much of himself. So I say that again. I believe God magnifying himself and acting to display his goodness and his glory is for our sake. And God is the only one where that, that self-promotion is actually a selfless act. We can't do that in our weakness, in our pride, when we go all self-promotion, people see through us, people see what we're trying to do, people see that we're trying to put ourselves above others and above God. But with God, that can't happen because he is unsurpassed. He is the only one who can rightly say, I am glorious, worship me, and it not be a selfless act, selfish act. It is for us that God has done all of this. And then we come to verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So we've seen the situation we're in. We've seen that God has rescued us from it. We've seen that God has rescued us for something. And we have seen a little bit just of why God has done it in this way. So now Paul is answering the question, well, how do we actually take hold of this? How do we be a part of God's incredible work? And in in these verses that follow, he gives us um, verses that became so precious um, to two people who rediscovered them in the Reformation 500 years ago. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So we've talked a bit about the grace, um, and that grace comes because we have faith, sorry, that grace comes to us because we have faith in it, because God has given us faith to believe what he has done for us. And notice Paul puts a qualification in there. Because again, we could be thinking, okay, God, I get it. It's your grace. It's your work. I can't do anything. But if I can have the faith to take hold of it, that's my part. That's what I do. I can can work up the faith to take hold of it but Paul says no this is not your own doing it's the gift of God it's not just the grace of God and the salvation which is the gift it's the faith to take hold of it which is a gift from God as well it is all from him guys everything everything in our salvation from start to end is from God and we see that so clearly in this verse which gets qualified not as a result of works so that no one may boast there may be good works in our life there may be works that surpass others in our life. The second we rely on them to access the grace of God, the moment we rely on them in the place of faith, we are in trouble. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we come to stand in this incredible salvation. So why were the verses like these and other verses, um, such as in Romans 3, when Paul talks about a righteousness that we have that comes from God and not from ourselves. Why were these verses so precious um, and so revolutionary 500 years ago? They'd always been in the Bible. They were always there. And actually, um, our first response to that might be, well, the church had just got it wrong over those 1500 years. They didn't believe in the grace of Christ and that salvation came through that. That would actually be slightly wrong. The Catholic Church always preached on the grace of Christ and the merits of Christ. And that is how salvation came. But the huge difference is that point we've just looked at. How do we take hold of the grace of Christ? So it's not that the grace of Christ was in question. Although it must be said that a lot of preaching in the second millennium, at least, up until the 1520s, didn't emphasise it much. But the belief was still there. The doctrine was still there. So so what what was the contention? The contention was how we take hold of it. How do we get hold of this grace of Christ? Um, And the essential theology um, of the church was that we are the guardians of the grace of Christ. So by associating yourself with the church, um, you can get hold of the grace of Christ and be saved. Um, And there were various different ways you get hold of some of this grace. Some of it would be through normal standard practices of Christian worship, so through communion, through baptism, uh, through preaching, through prayer. Things that we wouldn't in and of ourselves have an issue with, but were actually made means of taking hold of the grace rather than personal faith. Um, But those, those were the more tame examples. There were some real wild examples that were going on 500 years ago. Um, And the most prominent of those was a thing called the indulgences. Now, the indulgences, this is really what got Luther. This is actually what um, prompted Luther to write his 95 theses, which kicked off this whole rediscovery um, of grace by faith alone. Um, And what the indulgences um, that anyone could buy. And these letters promised kind of a fast track boarding pass to heaven. So the essential theology of the time was you need to get enough grace in order to get to heaven. Most of you are going to have to go through purgatory, which was kind of a state between life and death, where you, you suffered a bit more punishment to make you pure enough to get to heaven. So what these indulgences did was they give you a fast track through that. So you could, you could buy a letter, it'd be signed by the Pope, and it would say, you've basically, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, you've got enough grace, you can go to heaven, you're, you're all right. And so clearly for a population um, that were held by these kind of teachings, this was an incredibly valuable thing. People wanted to get their hands on these indulgences. They wanted to spare themselves the idea of significant and ongoing pain before they could get to heaven. Um, but Luther um, Martin Luther, he was, he was wrestling with these kind of questions himself. He was wrestling with, well, how do I know I'm good enough to be saved? Even if i bought a thousand letters, if I said a thousand masses, if I said a thousand prayers, if I went on a thousand fasts, would I really know that I had the righteousness that I need to stand before God? And he just could not find any peace through the system. And that is where he discovered um, it was Romans 3. There is a righteousness that comes from God. And that set him free. That set him alive. He became a new man as he realised that he would only stand in heaven because of these trees we've been looking at this morning, because God had done it, because he could take hold of that righteousness through faith. And so he saw these indulgences and this didn't all happen overnight. This was this was this is a kind of progressive line of thought that emerged. He started to see that some of the practice of the church and most specifically indulgences were fundamentally opposed to this a message that um, God had given us in Scripture, that we can know him through faith alone, um, which is why um, he started, which is why he posted those 95 theses, which what they were was essentially 95 points arguing against the practice and theology of the indulgences and other kind of practices that were similarly going on at the same time. So... None of this, I should say, is a comment that I'm making on practice or belief in the Roman Catholic Church today. But I feel it did need highlighting as a historical context under which we have come to believe these verses in the way we've come to believe these verses. It doesn't make, the Reformation doesn't make sense unless we understand what was going on. It, it, it looks like a terrible division of church unity unless we see what was at stake. These treasures of the gospel, salvation by faith, by grace through faith alone. These have been completely smothered by the practices of the church at the time. And therefore, I believe, while there were obviously things that were not right about it, the Reformation was utterly necessary to recover these treasures of the gospel. We would not be having these truths today if brave men and women 500 years ago did not stand up to fight for them. So that's, that's why these verses um, have become so associated with Martin Luther and the other reformers. And because they were the theological way that the the abuses of the church at that time were broken, they were seen to be false through verses such as these. So, as we just finish looking at the passage in verse 10, this is potentially a bit of a confusing verse, given what we've just been talking about. Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So with all of this talk of salvation by grace and no works apart from works, why is Paul then concluding this thought with our good works? Well, there's no contradiction here, because actually, when we have received salvation, when we have come to know God, when we have been filled by the Holy Spirit, it is then that we are empowered to truly do good works. Until our works come from faith, until our works are empowered by God, they don't in and of themselves, um, they don't have any spiritual value. But once God has made us alive in Christ, our works do have incredible significant value. But it's only once we lay down the idea that those our works can get us any righteousness that we'll be liberated to be living this life of good works. So. And this builds on the idea as well that we looked at earlier, that we are saved for something. So we looked at that in the spiritual sense, but very practically in our lives. God has saved us to live rich, gospel-pointing, God-exalting, Christ-magnifying lives. So don't hear me wrong, our works absolutely matter. What we do with our life, our behaviour, our choices are vitally important. And actually, if you read the whole of New Testament... You'll be amazed at just how closely is that our works, faith and our works are talked about together. The key distinction is that our works do not save us and we cannot rely on them to save us. But once we've been saved, we must expect to see good works. We must expect to see the fruits of the spirit and, and transformed lives are an evidence that someone has actually truly come to know Christ in the first place. So this is a really exciting verse because it liberates us from knowing that we have to do enough to be saved. We don't. God has saved us. But it does empower us to live our lives with passion and with courage and with risk. So all of our talks about callings and destinies and visions and strategies, I believe this verse kind of gives affirmation to all of that kind of thinking. We can dream big as a church. We can dream big in our own personal lives because we have been transformed by God, completely apart from ourselves. And so we know that that transformation is reliable. We know that God has done a good work in us because it is God's work and not our work. He has prepared a master plan for us from before all time began. He's prepared a life for us to walk in. And we can increasingly do this. We can increasingly obey his leading as we develop our relationship with his Holy Spirit, which again comes to us as a gift from God. God comes to us as a gift from himself. Wow. So I didn't really know where to go at the end of this passage. i as you hope you see, I've been really affected by it as I've reflected on it and meditated on it. It's it's been so powerful. Um, but what I wanted to do, I wanted to kind of finish off uh, by telling a I hope a um, reasonably pithy biography um, of another reformer. Um, and this person. their life came to embrace these truths. They didn't always believe these things. Um, They they were enlightened and they came to kind of embody all of these wonderful truths and then stand up in the face of intense opposition to defend these truths. Um, So going back to our theme of standing up for the gospel, I think what the life I want to share with you, I hope, is a wonderful example um, and inspiration for us. Um, And that person that I want to look at today is Hugh Latimer. So... I think we could probably draw similar lessons from a wide number of reformers. Uh, But I chose Hugh Latimer for a very specific reason. One is we see a very direct persecution that he suffers because of his faith in the gospel. So we can see that lesson come out really clearly. Um, And secondly, Hugh Latimer is, is sort of a local man to hear. So I don't know if you're thinking, when you think of the Reformation, maybe it all feels a bit German or a bit Scottish to you. I kind of, I kind of want to make it, give it much more of a Midlands feel. <laughs> so um, Hugh Latimer, he was born in Leicestershire for many years. He was a Bishop of Worcester. Um, and he lived out his last days just down the M40 in Oxford. So obviously the M40 was not around then. <laughs> um, but hopefully that gives you a sense that actually this Reformation history wasn't just something that happened um, over in the continent. It's something that was happening right here in English soil. Um, we don't know precisely when Hugh Latimer was born. We think it was around 1485. The first definite date we know is that at age 25, he became fellow of Clare College at Cambridge. So clearly a smart cookie, only 25 years old, given a fellowship at Cambridge. Um, and it was seven years after this in 1517, 500 years ago, um, that Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of Wittenbergs on these kind of themes in the years after he published his theses. And those works in great number. So this kind of new teaching on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, made it into England and made it into the English tongue very soon after Luther started preaching. Um, so there were a number of clergy in the English church quite early on who were, uh, who were sympathetic to these kind of new doctrines. Uh, but Latimer was definitely not one of them. Now, at this time, he was absolutely loyal to the Church of Rome and hated the German reformers. And not what they were teaching. But all of that changed in 1524 uh, when he encountered um, a brave early English reformer by the name of Thomas Bilney. Um, Now, Bilney had been forced to hear Latimer preach in in a university sermon in Cambridge. Um, Bilney was also a Cambridge man. Um, And Latimer um, essentially issued a, a rallying cry against the Reformation and against the Lutheran doctrines. Um, And so Latimer was a bit surprised a few days later when Bilney turned up at his office because Bilney was well known as a reformer. And that was a particularly risky thing to be at that time in England. So there was huge amounts of opposition from the state, from the church to reformation ideas in England at that time. Um, He assumed that Bilney had turned up to his office to recant and to say, oh, great, Latimer, how right you are. Um, I submit again to the Church of Rome. I, I reject these heretical Lutheran teachings. Um so Latimer was a bit surprised that Bilney had turned up to try and convert him to these new teachings. So and how Bilney did this, um, he got hold of um, a Greek New Testament. Um, and the New Testament hadn't been available in Greek for very long at that point. And, and not many people in England, even scholars, had their hands on it. Uh, but Bilney was able to lead Latimer through the Greek New Testament um, to some of the verses that we were considering this morning. Um, and in a moment, Latimer was shocked. Latimer saw the doctrines of grace. Um, and over a very short space of time, in over just a few weeks, he become one of the leading opponents of the Reformation in England to one of its leading advocates. All because of the faithful witness um, of one man called Thomas Bilney. Um, needless to say, Latimer quickly made enemies in his newfound role um, as the champion of the Reformation in England. Um, but then something happened in 1534. So that we're nine years on now. I'll try and keep you on track with the dates, uh, which had profound consequences for the Reformation in England and for the English church. And that was our monarch at the time, Henry VIII. Um, he had grown from being one of the most loyal subjects to the pope to being a deeply frustrated king and a deeply frustrated man who was opposed to the Pope. Um, And this wasn't because of any kind of big theological revelations he had, um, but he lived by Catherine of Aragon. Um, And Henry suddenly became interested in Reformation theology uh, because um, with the Bible being available um, in the original languages and with scripture being taught and exposed more and more, um, there were some verses in the Old Testament that Henry thought he could use to justify the divorce to Catherine of Aragon. Because Catherine of Aragon had been the wife of his brother, um, Arthur, before Arthur died. Um, and that was one of the kind of relationships that was prohibited in the Levitical laws about marriage. So, so Henry thought, ah, if I can get some theological firepower on my side, maybe I've got room to oppose the Pope. Maybe, maybe, I, can, maybe I can do this. And he also appointed a lot of researchers to look back into the deep history of England to look at the relationship between the English crown and the Pope. And, and not surprisingly, given the task they were asked to do by Henry, they found that the English crown had a lot more independence from the Pope than you might have thought. So, kind of Henry, armed with these two things, armed with this kind of um, pseudo-theological justification for his divorce, and this idea that actually the English lands weren't subject to the Pope. He essentially declared independence. He declared independence from Rome. So he became the supreme head of the church in England. So that opened that opened doors. So as I say, Henry didn't suddenly believe all of these Reformation doctrines, uh, but there were over the next few years, more and more kind of opportunities became available. Uh, to those clergy who sympathise with Reformation. They they were not persecuted as intensely. Although if you were too intense about it, then you were still liable to persecution. Henry was very careful not to let anyone go too far um, from his idea of him being the head of the church. If you were too loyal to Rome, or if you were too loyal to Luther, you'd probably be executed. But there there was some kind of room in this kind of space, um, which didn't exist before. Um... And Latimer, at this time, he was one of the um, many clergy who were appointed in the court of King Henry to preach to the monarch. Um, and despite many of his fellow kind of um, royal preachers being opposed to him, uh, Latimer priory in Worcester, uh, Latimer decided that actually he'd rather take up um, the bishopric in Worcester that I talked about, um, and he did this so he could kind of really lead the churches in that area in a really pastoral manner. So he was trying to make sure. That the scriptures in the English language got through to the churches in his locality and that he prayed for and supported his pastors, which is a pretty revolutionary thing for bishops to do at that time. because it was much more a political position of power. But Latimer wanted to see these great truths kind of taken hold of by the people and lived out in their life. Um, So that happened. But Henry was a very volatile character and he turned against the reformers again in the latter part of his life from 1539 to 1547. Um, And during those years, Latimer was placed under house arrest. um, And then he was put in the Tower of London um, until Henry died and he was released by the successor, Edward VI. And in the six years of Edward VI's reign, there was unprecedented um, opportunities for the reformers for the gospel to advance in these lands, because Edward was staunchly pro-Reformation. So during those years, um, the Book of Common Prayer was written, which was the kind of liturgical text of the church at the time that embodied a lot of these truths. Uh, but then Edward died in 1553 and his sister Mary came to the throne, who was a very staunch Catholic and advocate of the Roman Church um, and was seeking to essentially purge out every bit of influence that had happened over the past 30 years from the English lands. Um, So it's not surprising that very soon uh, Latimer was arrested again. Um, He was sent to prison in Oxford um, and after given many opportunities to Uh, repent of these truths and to declare himself loyal to Rome again, uh, which he refused, Um, he was condemned to be burned at the stake, condemned to death for believing the gospel. And as I say, he had many chances to save himself and to um, take back his teachings But what he had found is, I hope what we have found a little bit of this morning, he'd found a sense of life. He'd found a sense of preciousness. He would found a sense of this is worth my everything, even death when I discover Christ. And so he wasn't going to back down. He was going to literally stand up for the gospel in his death. And he was sentenced to death alongside a a younger, yet no less fearless champion of the gospel called Nicholas Ridley. Uh, And they were sentenced to be burned together back-to-back back in Oxford. And I just want to tell a little bit more um, about that death, because there's a, there's a quote in there which I really want us to take hold of. Um, they were being prepared for execution. The bailiffs were just about to set light to the sticks that are surrounding them. And Latimer cried out to Ridley to try and encourage his younger brother, "'Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, "'and play the man.' We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. And I want to encourage us, guys, we are we are part of that candle that has been lit by Latimer and Ridley. The gospel candle in this land has never gone out and we are called to burn. We are called to burn with passion and delight in the gospel of grace. And we live in a time where we can see there is so much spiritual need. There is so much spiritual darkness. We need to be taking the light of the gospel into every corner of this land. It must be Jesus who compels us to do this. But I hope that remembering stories like we have remembered today will give us encouragement as we see other faith saints have the courage to stand up and pursue God and pursue his joy, whatever the cost. We stand in a really rich heritage when it comes to proclaiming the gospel.